0: Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Dr. Jenny is a board-certified pediatrician and is the director of telemedicine at Pediatric Associates. Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Malka discussing food allergies. Dr. Malka is currently the director of allergy and immunology at one of the largest pediatric groups in the country. Prior to starting the allergy division at Pediatric Associates, Dr. Malka was an assistant professor of pediatrics at National Jewish Health Division of Allergy and Immunology and Rheumatology at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. He is currently a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology. Dr. Malka's research interests include food allergies, understanding and managing severe asthma, and biomarkers in the diagnosis and management of asthma. Welcome, Dr. Malka. Hello, Dr. Malka. Welcome back.
1: Hi, uh, hey, Dr. Berkowitz. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm back
0: good. Again. I'm good. So the last time we spoke, which was uh, back in season one, we talked about allergies and I asked you a lot of questions, um, primarily for my own education as a pediatrician, but um, I have a little bit of a different perspective now because I... I'm a, a parent of a child with um, a lot of food allergies and this is this is really new for us to navigate. So I'm, I'm hoping to uh, to learn a little bit more um, I think on, on the parent side um, today as, as we talk about food allergies. So we touched on this briefly last time, but remind me, the most common food allergies that you see primarily are what?
1: So it, it has changed a little bit since last season. Uh, before used to call the top eight foods. And in children, if we break it down, I think it will be peanut, uh, egg, and milk will be the three most common ones in that order. Uh, when you have a peanut allergy, uh, peanuts in a legume family, so people get confused with peanut and tree nuts, but they are not the same. Um, when you have a peanut allergy, uh, those patients do have a 30% chance of developing a tree nut allergy. And tree nuts are considered almond, cashew, pistachio, walnut, pecan, and hazelnut. Uh, pine nuts, for example, is not considered tree nut, coconut, it's not considered tree nut, so we stick to the almond, cashew, pistachio, walnut, pecan, and then hazelnut, hazelnut being Nutella, right, so it's very commonly yeah. ingested. Uh, then the list goes into wheat, uh, uh, soy, uh, then fish and shellfish. Those are the top eight. They added a ninth allergen, which I think to you is due to your heart now, is sesame seeds. So, and I think, again, it goes back to the, I think we spoke about the topic March last year. Your your listeners may or may not remember. I'll be happy to kind of brief you back on it quickly. It's the uh, the progression of the allergic disorder over the course of time. It starts with eczema, which makes you prone to having food allergies. Food allergy may not be the cause of the eczema, but eczema is the likely cause of food allergies. Over time, you tend to outgrow uh, some of the foods, which we'll discuss later. And then you develop into the environmental allergies. So those are the the, uh, the atopic margin, then the asthma comes into, into perspective. Now, I'm mentioning this because sesame seeds have now become more frequent because things are being uh, much more ingested. Foods are being included in more sesame in our diet, and it's not because of the Mediterranean diet, right? So we're, we're much more uh, into uh, tahinas or hummus, things that contain sesame, and that becomes more prevalent in our society, then we're becoming more allergic to it. So that's why it was recently added.
0: That makes sense. I remember last time saying something like, oh, uh, the one that makes me the most nervous, I think, you know, in the environment, in the community is peanuts. And you said the one that should make you the most nervous is dairy.
1: 100%. And that still sticks to the same thing. Uh think, you know, the peanut has changed over time because we, have, we that's the food that, that, that we know the most and how to maybe, I don't want to say treat, quote unquote, prevent, maybe mm-hmm. decrease severity of reactions Well, you can do something. We can talk about it later if you want. Um, but, uh, in our country, I think that the only deaths that we've seen with food challenges and it's been to it and so far than God has been with milk and the mm-hmm. most common, uh, ER visits is actually due to milk. So milk is one of those that is quite a scary food allergy. And we also, I would say, I think in the last year, I think we now say cash is a new peanut.
0: Because it's more prevalent? And severe. And severe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So uh, I know when my child was being diagnosed with food allergies, we we saw an allergist. There was a lot of like the the workup was was extensive. We had skin testing, we had blood testing. What's the difference and what's the different like utility of the of the different ways that you guys uh, diagnose food allergies?
1: So so it's a great question. We have to take into account really be, be careful with what you wish for sometimes, right? In the testing. Because testing food allergies is not what people want to make it to be, all right. And when I give any lectures about food allergies, I always say, guys, the most important component of diagnosing food allergy is three things. History, history, and more history. And when you think you have enough history, get a little more history, meaning what happened. Yeah. Right? So the best diagnostic tool you can have for a clinician is to ask the right questions. As a parent, it is also associate the, the symptoms with the allergy. For example, the story of food allergies will be the first, second time you ingest the food. Within minutes of the ingestion, you will have a systemic reaction, right? So food is never going to go into your system and just bypass everything, go and give you an nasal congestion or, or give you uh, one little dot in the forehead when the, you know there's a rainy day versus a sunny day. Uh, it's not going to be associated with autism or behavioral changes or ADHD or never mental disorders. So that's not, never been associated. And that's a whole different spectrum we should mention about testing when we get down to it. Yeah. So if you have a history that's very consistent with food allergy, and like I mentioned, the IgE type of reaction will be first, second time you eat it within minutes of the ingestion, you will get the high, the difficulty breathing, breathe and lip swelling, cough wheezing. That then you confirm if it's an allergist, that's just myself and um, my, my colleagues in the allergy group, you will do that a skin test. And the skin test kind of confirms diagnosis. Okay. Once you have a confirmation of the history confirmed by the skin test, then you do a blood test. Now, nor the blood test, nor the skin test, nor the reaction will tell you the severity of the potential reaction, which is an important point. The bigger the size of the skin test does not equal a more Mm -hmm. allergic kid versus a smaller size. The higher the level in the blood test does not equal more allergenic or more allergic Mm -hmm. response than the lower kid. But the blood test does over time is the higher you have the value, the less likely you're going to outgrow the food. And that goes back to the same atopic march. If you have a high level in blood and you have other allergic conditions, you're then more likely to have a longer duration of your food allergy compared to kids who don't have other allergic conditions. Now, the blood is also very useful as a way to follow progression of our disease, meaning if I have a high level, but the level goes down over time, and we say if it's a tenfold decrease over the course of a year or two, that's a child who may be going in the, in, the, in the trending of potential outgrowing. So the level of the blood test, especially in children, because the immune system is not fully developed yet, it may be low to begin with and then goes high before it goes low again. So you have to be careful. Even though it may be low at the beginning, the kid may be more severely allergic than the one actually is becoming very high. So does it not mean that the high one needs an epinephrine versus this one does not need epinephrine. Both of them need epinephrine at any time they're around, and we'll talk about it later about treatment. Yeah. So, to confer- to assess, to give you a short, long, long answer to your question, will be history is the best way. Skin test confirms diagnosis. Blood test is a, is a way to actually follow progression of disease over time when levels go down. Then you will retest and then hopefully food challenge, which is the gold standard. Now, let's say the other, the other side. So a positive test, blood test or skin test equals a 50-50 chance of being true. So what I tell my parents is, my patients, if I toss a quarter, I literally give you the same answer. So what is going to tell me if that quarter is right or wrong is going to be the testing. If you have a test that is positive and the child eats the food, you do not want to take the food away from the patient's diet. I just want to emphasize that.
0: Because I think that's really important because people love the testing and you'll have maybe something that turns up positive in the blood, but it's something that the child's been eating without having a reaction. That child is not allergic to the food. No,
1: no, that's, that's completely false. And if you actually take it away and the child's a little one, let's say, and I, and I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier on purpose that the immune system is not fully developed. What happens is, if the child's eating the food and that you, for some reason you, you have a concern and you ask your pediatrician to test you and the pediatrician you can be finally convinced to test you you get a positive test of the egg. Let's say the patient is eating the egg. If you take the egg away and the patient has eczema, for example, if you stop the food for three weeks or longer, you are likely going to develop the allergy to egg. So stopping the food because of a test where there was no history of reactions before the test, you actually will promote the development of allergies. So it's, it's the test is as good as the history, a positive test without any history of symptoms when ingesting the food, it's not associated with an adverse reaction. It's not a food allergy, nor is associated with an adverse reaction. That that's why as you go back to the history.
0: I think that's also really important to call out because I have found that there's an increased popularity with, um, like com- commercial testing. Have so, you seen these like, yeah, so that you so can I'm, buy yourself? I yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Right. so yeah, so I was mentioning that. So, you know, the immune system, I, I, you know, I wish I had a, a graph I can show for you, but the immune system is the game. I call it the game. So you have different immune globulins, right? Which is kind of your, what protects you from different viruses and bacteria and proteins that your body has to go through, right? The, uh, the game stands for IgG, IgA, IgM, and IgE, okay? So let's say, for example, uh the ige in theory it's it's in person in our body to protect us from parasites but we don't have parasites in this country so like anything in your in your body when you lose balance and you have too much of something you, that becomes abnormal and that abnormal behavior of the ige is what gives you allergies right so we measure ige as a way to measure allergic response like i just mentioned a skin test and or the blood test yeah. so blood tests for food allergies only ige Right? The higher the level, the more likely you have it if you have a history, but does not mean severity. Now, when you ingest the foods and you tolerate the foods with no consistent reaction to an allergen, meaning the highest, difficult degree, insurance of breath, the things we spoke earlier, your body is actually provoking IgG. The IgG in the game is actually the one that makes memory cells. For example... When you give a child vaccines, your body produces IgG to that vaccine. So you're protected against that virus or bacteria you're getting. You give boosters of the vaccine to build that memory. COVID, for example, patients were measuring antibodies. Oh, I have COVID. I want to measure my antibodies. Those are IgG antibodies, right? So again, it's memory. The more you have exposure to it, the higher the level, and it go down over time if you don't ingest it regularly. Those tests that you're mentioning, those are not standardized testing. That is not covered in insurance, are quite expensive. And what they measure is actually IgG. So that has no role in food allergies. So basically, when you see that, the more you ingest a specific food, the higher the level you'll have. But because your body's promoting making more uh, proteins or having a better response, knowing not to attack that food. Usually, the patient comes in with a test, is a big list of foods, and I tell them, Oh, I'm very sorry, you just spent 400 bucks. Yeah. And basically, I can tell you what you ate, but does not equal in any way, shape, or form allergies. It's the opposite to allergy. Wow.
0: I think that, that's really important. I hope people people listen to that because I think, and I, I mean, I can understand as a parent, like you, you want wanting to know, right? Especially if you have maybe other children in the family or other family members who have true food allergies right. and when, right, you you kind of want to know ahead of time so that way you know what to maybe a- avoid exposing your child to. But it sounds like that may be detrimental, which I think leads me to my next question of prevention right and is, is there anything that we can do because i think the answer used to be no but now the tide has shifted like what is there anything to be done in terms of uh preventing the development of so, some food allergies
1: yeah, so that's a great question the question we get asked the most and actually you mentioned something that's quite important when you have a family member who has a food allergy those are the ones that should be exposed the most
0: yeah.
1: right but that's in reality the hardest one because you're afraid of the other kind of Yeah. and i think that's also an important concept we have to tackle right you you have to understand that There's a lot of myths and misconceptions about food allergy, right? The first thing is being around food allergens, if you don't ingest the food, you will not have a reaction. So, anaphylaxis, which is a dreaded reaction or really a systemic reaction, will only take place if you ingest the food. Contact to the food, as long as it does not contact the mucosa of the mouth, it will just be a local reaction. You can literally, if I touch my arm, I just wipe my arm, wash, you know, soap and water, and it's done, right? Perfect. So, if the best thing you can do for a child who's been diagnosed with food allergy, so that's before you ask how percent, prevent, is you should really work on education on what is expected behavior, what is an, a, a good fear to have, respect. I call it like the ocean. You want to go in the ocean, but you want to respect it, right? It's because it can be a traitor. It's the same thing. You want to understand what are your, your risks and, and, and benefits, right? Or the risk and quality of life. I have kids who are so afraid that they, when they walk the aisle in the supermarket in the peanut aisle, they hold their breath. That's not a normal response. I understand where they're coming from. Don't get me wrong. I'm not judging or criticizing anyone. But I think if you have the right education, you can prevent those behaviors because it leads to bullying in school. So we have a lot of bullying in school. So understand the concept of allergy, right? So just being in the the environment is not going to give you a reaction, right? So I emphasize that because if you have another kid, you want to make sure that kid has exposure to the foods. Now, the second sibling does not have to have the same allergen. Right? He's more at risk of developing allergies in general. It may present with eczema, it may present with rhinitis, meaning the congestion already nose, if she has a or asthma. It may present with food allergies. But there's so many allergies you can have reactions to. So likely some of them, if he has a lot of food allergies, will present the same, right? Because if how many eggs can you know, egg is a common one, you may have egg as well. So in the child who has not been diagnosed, right? And let's say a parent comes to me and I confirm that she's pregnant, I don't mess up, you know, because I I got myself burnt in the past. So, yes, yeah, she's <laughs> pregnant. Uh, so, the first thing data has shown, that in the third trimester pregnancy, you can start by adding probiotics to the maternal diet. So, the reason why probiotics is useful is because if you give the right microbiome to your child, meaning the right gut flora in a way, and then not only gut flora, the microbiome extends all the way from skin flora to respiratory flora. So, the microbiome is actually even more than DNA information that we have. If you have the right microbiome, you're likely going to have more of a barrier effect. So your gut is more it's more mature in a way, it's more tight. It lets less less proteins come in that make you more sensitized or prone to becoming allergic, less chances of an eczema. So if you start with that, and then you go into introduction of foods. Now, let's make let's be on clear what's been the most approved and, and, and reproduced study has been the peanut study. And Long story short, it's called LEAP. It's learning early about peanut. And they basically did little children who were between 4 and 11 months of age who had moderate eczema in food allergy to egg, because that's an important point. Egg is the most common food associated with eczema, not milk. So changing formulas may not answer your question. So then in those patients who had a little skin test to peanut with no history, so they were sensitized, again, a patient who had no history, but it was positive, they went ahead and divided into Two groups, patients who had peanut, patients who avoided peanut. Long story short, the patients who ate the peanut had a significant less chance of having food allergies. Mm-hmm. Okay, the study was concluded. A year later, the, st- the patients kind of ate peanut as, as much as they want and didn't want. They challenged again and they went ahead and had the same protective effect. Recently, just published data actually it hasn't been published, but it's just presented they called Leap Trio. So they follow the same kids, now they're teenagers. And they ate the group that ate peanut ate peanuts as much as they wanted. The kids who didn't eat peanut didn't eat peanuts, didn't eat it. And still you had the protective effects in the patients who ingested peanut. So what we showed is that if you start early when the immune system is still plastic enough that we can change in our direction, it's not completely mature, as I mentioned earlier. You may protect from early. And as long as you have some exposure to it, that's important. You must continue the exposure. You can have a lifelong immunity or protection from the food allergies. So, introduction of the peanut at four or six months after the baby is able to ingest fruits and vegetables, and a motor developed, is uh, tone is developed, and the, and the feeding part is developed. You want to introduce peanut butter. There's a snack called Bamba, uh, which is like a like a Cheetos made of peanut. There's some data that suggests that things thing should be done for eggs same thing for milk. There's tree nut butters, of course, always going to have choking hazards. And there's even data to suggest that if you introduce milk in the first two weeks of life, and I'm not discouraging breastfeeding by any way, shape, or form, you supplement milk in the first two weeks of life, you may also have a decrease in the incidence of food allergy to milk by six months of age. But then the study showed that it's not just the first week or two weeks that's important, it's at least drinking 10 mLs for at least 30 days that will protect you for six months. So it's not just, oh, he had it one time, nothing happens, he's he protected for life. No, no, no. You give the food, continue the ingestion of the food as they go.
0: That's that's so interesting. And um, I actually have a follow-up question just in terms of the milk, because when when I think of you know giving whole milk to a newborn, obviously that is concerning to me. So that that's not necessarily what you're saying. I'm sure there's no, prob- no the different re- recommendations no, for doing
1: formula. it. Regular Form. formula. Okay. not whole milk, because the kidneys mm-hmm. aren't ready for it. Regular formula, mm-hmm. not even hydrolyzed formula, not even the ones that mm-hmm. are broken down. You want to go for intact protein because that's the only way you're gonna promote tolerance by building the right immune cells, the IgG I mentioned earlier.
0: That's fascinating because I always thought of one of the things that breast, breastfeeding protects against was the development of food allergies. That's what was like one of the protective certificates.
1: No, I'm still a board certified pediatrician. I'm still keeping my certification, but that statement has never been actually proven.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Breastfeeding is amazing. I'm not discouraging you. You should always breastfeed. But as a protective effect for food allergies, mm-hmm. there's no significant data to say that, that has been shown. But can it be, would I say stop it? No. I'll continue. We just got to think about maybe it and it's not going to stop breastfeeding. It's a very small amount, but you want to supplement and keep it right. there from, from the get-go. Especially, again, it's not for everyone. It's not for every patient who walks into your house, not for every mother listening to the right. podcast. It's for those patients who have family risk factors Or as someone else with with the food allergies, you want to be proactive to minimize the reaction of that other patient. And it's important to understand one thing. A lot of parents are concerned, oh, what if he has a reaction? Yes, that's a good point. But let's go back to the term I've used a lot today. The immune system is not fully developed, right? So the reaction at the first exposure in children is actually very mild. tends to be just hives. Mm -hmm. And if you ask the question, majority of parents, what they do when they get the reaction is, oh, I just gave him a bath. That, To my knowledge, water is not cure, although water is great, but what I'm trying to say is things will tend to go away on their own because it's a mild reaction because your body still not fully, fully blown up in a mature immune system, right? So that's why with, when you get risk-benefit, you're better off by introducing than not because the reaction will not be a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction
0: follow but i also don't want people to necessarily see right introduce the food see the reaction be like okay now they're having a reaction i guess they're allergic that's also not the correct conclusion right that's when we really want to get an allergist involved to add that that supplemental piece to the puzzle of the skin testing and the blood testing to actually confirm whether or not this is a true allergy yes because now we have
1: a lot of different approaches right we have a different something called oral immunotherapy we have what's called the egg and the milk ladder, which we sometimes we're given fake forms and we kind of let them, you know, step up in a way to get them. So there are many, many new ways, but still data's a little conflicting, but there we can, if, if you're the right patient, you actually will have, you can start early and we can hopefully kind of skew this reaction from from developing all the way or at least halting the progression of the food allergy over time and 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 outgrowing it, you know, a little faster now. Let's talk about growing for a second, right? Because that can make a big difference. So milk and egg tends to be grown at least 80% by six years of age. So it's very commonly grown, right? So one important point, for example, if your kids are allergic to milk or egg, but it's eating things that are baked with milk and egg, don't stop it. Because in a way, you actually are given some form of the protein, right? So it doesn't translate, but you want to do, for example, maybe the egg, you don't want to do mayonnaise, uh, meringue, uh, ranch dressing, things that may contain eggs, some ice creams. If they're not baked, they're not going to be allergenic. The peanut is outgrown only 20% of the patients, and that's where the blood test becomes a useful tool, right? The tree is only about 10% or less. Fish and shellfish less. Sesame will be considered in the tree family. So each of those foods seems to be then longer, right? So that's why if you're early and we can do something about it with most of the foods we can nowadays, you have a better chance of at least not having a severe reaction and potentially accelerating the, the outgrown of the food after
0: so that, that makes sense to me because I remember going for the oral challenge. My, my son had an oral challenge because his testing was inconclusive for peanut allergy. He had a bunch of confirmed food allergies. But the one that I think didn't make a lot of sense looking at the blood work was peanuts. So our allergist recommended um, an oral challenge. And we needed to schedule it kind of urgently because he was about to turn one. And I remember that 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 was an important piece that, like, like you were saying, we really needed to do it sooner rather than later because we wanted to sort of continue that exposure if he was not, in fact, allergic, which he's not. So now we kind of have like a prescription of how often we have to give him peanuts. Right, right. And there are
1: different forms on days and we convert the amount of proteins you give. And, and once you have it, we can do it maybe a couple times a week. You don't have to do it every day like a religious thing, but just keep in their diet. And, and you're likely not going to grow it because if you didn't, he potentially will have the, the fruit out of the peanut.
0: So now let's let's talk about treatment because I think we have a nice overview of like what what to expect and what to look for. So let's let's talk about treatment because I know this also is is like an exciting kind of development in the field and there's there's new ones coming out regularly.
1: Right. So so there is um there there is the, the one biological so it was one laboratory that made peanut protein. Uh, it's called Polforcia. It's it's quite expensive and it's it's really hard to do. In the sense that uh, you're just—it's it's, not—it's too little amount of protein and too expensive. And we have a lot of different ways that we can do it, which is significantly cheaper for the families and easier to do. So um, Palforcia was done in patients is used, or what's called oral immunotherapy. I mentioned this earlier. So oral immunotherapy, our patients who already have developed the food allergy, and now we're trying to protect them from a severe reaction. Now, it's a big difference because a lot of patients believe that OIT, which is oral immunotherapy, is going to make you outgrow the food allergy. And that is not the reason why you should do it because it may not actually work that way. It's actually not never been shown. So, OIT goes back to when you can do it, right? So, I mentioned earlier that you start early, like the LEAP study, and you keep you're going to have life, and even if you don't eat it every day, you're going to have lifelong uh, protection. In the oral immunotherapy, once you stop, you may go back to square one. So oral immunotherapy is a very labor-intensive procedure that has to come into the office every two weeks. We get increasing amounts of the protein. We start a very little dose. The, the, parent, the kid goes home with the parent, and he get, eats it every single day. And then and two weeks after, he comes to the office, and we reach a dose that we believe to be a maintenance dose. And that, for, for example, for peanut is about two grams of peanut protein. <coughs> I'm sorry. It varies depending on the different foods that so you have a different amount of protein. Then you follow the blood test over time. So you do like a blood test before, a blood test in the middle, a blood test that you're after. If the level's looking good, that like he's a good responder, you start to go down. Now, those patients are just able to tolerate the food or small amounts of the food. But at the moment they stop, if they have not grown it, after a few months, they're going to go back to square one. That approach also for babies may be actually much more beneficial because in babies, when you start doing that, because again, the immune system is not fully developed, we actually teach them. And then those patients tend to outgrow it much quicker. So that's the biggest now, the most common one. It's been, a, there's more data now. There's some, I'm personally done for, I'm doing it for peanut, for cashew, sesame, and, and egg. I'm avoiding milk because it's quite dangerous, like we mentioned earlier. <laughs> um... There is no really good data for fish and shellfish. There is for wheat. Uh, so for the common ones, you can do it. Uh, there is something called the egg ladder and the milk ladder. So some patients don't have to go to the bird and some of doing OIT, but they can do uh, like very baked products, or they can even do lightly baked products, but they just can't do the egg, for example. So we kind of step them up every, you know, in big forms, and they and can do it at home or in, in the office, and they do it every day. And then over time, we follow the progression. Those are kids who tend to uh, grow it. For some children, it's not worth it to do anything, and really, times of the essence, you just follow over time, and they'll like, grow on their own. And uh, some kids will grow up between three or four years before the you know the six-year cutoff. So some parents I tell them, look, I think you're the kid who's you don't have any risk factors, your levels are low. I tested it twice, and you know, in, in two different uh, points in time, and they're low. Let's not go crazy and bring you here every every two weeks. I think just give it time, and by the time I confirm it, then I bring them in and do a food challenge. So that is kind of the approach once you have a diagnosis. Now, for the patients who are not diagnosed yet or we want to prevent, we then have discussion we had before about their introduction and make sure they continue. If they have a reaction, then they will jump, you know, ship to the other group and become now that the, the patients who are only treated. But we already have a base that they, they can eat some amount.
0: How do you decide who's a good candidate for OIT?
1: So that's a great question. I think, first of all, is parents committed, right? So I think it's uh, a parent who is willing to do it because it's quite labor intensive. It's every single day. There's a lot of restrictions when you do OIT, uh, you cannot exercise for two hours after, do, after ingesting the, the food, because body temperatures uh, will change the, the dose, right? Reaction to the dose. So for example, one day I, ate, uh, one peanut m M&M. m the next day I ate it and I exercised, uh, I may have a reaction, even shown that maybe it's, uh, menstrual periods, right? If you have your period, your body temperature goes up, you may have actually the same changes in doses um so teenagers are quite hard to do because i think they're very compliant and they have such a lifestyle that they're not going to be taken every day and they get tired of doing it so i don't like i I personally and a lot of uh, allergies out there do i personally don't start teenagers unless there's a really commitment or if they have the kids who are at high risk who has had reactions and needing epinephrine a few times those are kids that i will have the discussion I may not go all the way out to you know, the maintenance dose. I may go to a do- lower dose that may protect them from accidental injection. Um, I may, if a patient has ex- bad eczema or bad asthma, those are patients who are at risk of asthma. If you have a reaction, you're more likely to have a more severe reaction. If the patient's compliance, meaning his follow up clinics are not good, it comes once every few years and wants to do OIT. Those are patients going to f- even likely fail because the likelihood of making a failing OIT is when you start skipping doses. If you skip a dose and then you go back to either, oh, it's fine. I'll eat the next day. Mm-hmm. Or if you exercise, or thing, or if you have a fever, you got to change. If you have a dental procedure, uh, because there's an open now wound, direct exposure, mm-hmm. and more, scary, more, more penetrance, right? Yeah. So, so there is a lot of caveats, right, to do it, and uh, uh, that's why I personally believe that little children are easier to do. Mm-hmm. Because parents are still managing them. I think you can control them, you know, don't exercise for two hours. Mm-hmm. And I think also they have a greater chance of like growing the allergies, right? So I think it's it's a it's a win-win for them uh, to make a commitment for a kid who is not going to be eating, you know, uh, or, or stopping at some point. I, I'm now doing like an eight-year-old uh, who has a lot of food allergies. And we decided that, you know, the mom wanted to do some foods because he needs some foods in his diet. So we added almond. And we're not doing sesame seeds. So it's two foods. We may do one more at the end if everything goes well with the second one as a way to just give him something. But he still has got to carry his EpiPen. He still has to carry everything else. He doesn't have any other comorbid condition like asthma, allergies, or eczema. Uh, so it's a kid who's not such a risk. He many food allergies.
0: So I uh, I actually want to wrap up by talking about the EpiPen, which has come up a lot in this conversation. I think it'd be irresponsible for us to have a whole conversation about food allergies and not mention anaphylaxis and not mention the utility of the EpiPen. So what 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 is anaphylaxis, and why why should everyone with a food allergy or really any kind of allergy have an EpiPen? So so in, in, a, in a food al- a food.
1: I mentioned earlier that we don't have a way to know the severity, right? So I keep giving the example always to my parents is, well, when you drive, you wear the seatbelt, right? Why? Because you may get into just a little bumper, but you know, fender, or you may get up to a full blown accident, right? God forbid that happens. If that happens, you have the protection of the seatbelt. So you don't want to, you, you, if you leave your cell phone at home, you're likely going to be nervous <laughs> and you're likely going to go back home and get it, right? Because it's, a, it's, a, it's other than playing, you know, distracting the kids, it's a useful tool to communicate, right? So that you kind of have to think the same way for the epinephrine. Any adverse reaction to a food is an epinephrine potential reaction. Any food allergy. Data shows that if you delay the use of the epinephrine, you're likely going to have a much more severe reaction. So in theory, and if I were to go to court and raise my right hand, I have to say the only approved treatment for the, uh, for food allergy is an epinephrine. Zyrtec, Nor Benadryl, Nor antihistamines, Claritin are approved treatment. Let me let me, let me dwell on that for a second. Yeah. I would really recommend against Benadryl. I,
0: I remember this from last time, and I want you to know that I learned from you, and now I actually had to give my son something recently because he had a reaction that we would not expect, and I went straight for the Zyrtec. So I want you to be proud of me. <laughs>
1: yes, thank you, Jan. I appreciate it. Why? If you're gonna if you're gonna get me a car, don't get me a car from 2001. Get me a 2024 car, right? So you're not going to... It's better like a Tupperware. It's just a brand. It's not the approved. It's not better than anything else. Liquid antihistamines will work as well as, well as any liquid antihistamine. And if you have a kid who can talk, communicate with you, why knock him out? You want to actually be able to communicate... Yeah with the provider and the patient to know how he's doing. So forget Benadryl, that's an old And I old. would say
0: even in a non-verbal kid, right, you don't want to knock him out because sometimes that could be confusing the picture, right? Because you could be right. getting sleepy or altered as a result of your anaphylaxis and exactly. if you're doing that because of the Benadryl, now we don't know what's happening. So exactly. uh, so second generation, I think the point you made last time, which is important, second generation antihistamines like cetirizine, which is a brand, which is the generic for Zyrtec, right. do right. not across the blood-brain barrier as much and so we don't see that same uh, Um, the CNS depression, right? Or that same, like, sort of depressive symptoms. Sleepiness Um,
1: or Sleepiness, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so now, with that said, even a second generation is not the approved treatment. Mm -hmm. So I always tell parents, look, no one can judge you, no one can say we're wrong if you gave the epinephrine. So the right approach should be first sign of a reaction to a food and that, again, the signs can be subtle. A little baby can mm-hmm. just start going like this. And that can be that it's having some difficulty swallowing. Why wait? Yeah. Right? So the first sign of a reaction, if you know how ingesting of the food, the right approach should be epinephrine, Zyrtec, and if asthmatic, I will give abutero. Now, the old data says you have to go to the yard. Look, if you do that approach and the kid's doing fine, you don't have to go to the yard, Especially when you have telemedicine available nowadays, you can just follow up with them. And those patients are like, you're going to be fine. You get a refill, you're good to go. If that same patient, for example, has an improvement, but within five ten minutes kind of gets worse, then you give the second epi and then, yes, 911. If that same patient, you get the epi, you get the desertic, didn't get better within five minutes, you give the second epi and you call 911. So, an important thing is you must carry the epinephrine or injector, they come together for a reason. It's not mm-hmm. one for me, one for mom, one for me, one for grandma, one for me, one for school, two for me, two for school. I know they're expensive. But you must carry the two them together because there's a 20% chance of needing the second epinephrine. If you misfire the first one, you're going to have an issue if you don't have the second one. So, again, if you buy a car, you're going to buy a car with c and airbag, right? So, same thing. Now, it, sometimes parents ask me, well, what if one little hive, you're in there, just hive, and you're not sure if you ate the food, fine, you can do Xerotide. But as long as you start having any other symptoms, you have a concern, or your maternal instinct, or paternal instinct for that matter, gives you any you have any doubt or starts coughing or just like even scratching his tongue, just go for the epinephrine. Mm-hmm. There is no harm if you gave it. There'll be significantly more harm if you didn't give it or delay the use of it. And that's the key point. It's the use of it. It's not going to harm your child. Yes, you may have nightmares from the scare you had mm-hmm. injecting your kid, but it's a very easy pen to use. Just be trained how to use it. Be retrained every so often when you see a pediatrician or radiologist and always carry with you at all times, and use it when it's there for, for a reason.
0: No one ever regrets giving the epi, right? Unfortunately, no. people regret not giving
1: it. hundred percent, yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's true, about a close for anaphylaxis.
0: Anaphylaxis will be when you have more than two
1: system organs involved. likely involves if you have the hives, the vomiting, and respiratory distress. Sometimes you get hypotensive, uh, blood pressure drops. So that's a full-blown anaphylaxis, right? But anaphylaxis, although it's the most dreaded one, is not the most common one, thank God. So, understand that you can prevent it, hopefully by doing early in, in, uh, treatment, but it's not the most common reaction. It, it can happen 100%, but it's not the most common one.
0: Most common reactions being, I'm assuming rash. That's probably the one. Rash, way it could be
1: vomiting. Vomiting, in a way, is a good thing because your body's kind of releasing that, you know, yeah. getting rid, of, getting rid of, the, of the protein. So, in a way, that's a good thing. Uh, sometimes cough or wheezing or asthma flares can also be the cause. Yeah, symptom.
0: makes sense. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. All right. We covered a lot of ground today. Any, anything to wrap up? Any major things that you want to make sure we take away that uh, families with um, kids with, with uh, food allergies really take away? Yeah. So,
1: so I think we've touched on a few things. I think the first thing is just testing based on history. Don't just taste to, uh, look for allergies that are a way to explain everything because allergies are not going to explain everything. Not every nasal congestion is a, is a food allergy. Um, if you have families with kids with food allergies, education for your patient it's for the patient allergic to it's the best thing you know not to grab food from others plate uh, uh, yeah. medical bracelets uh, you know training your kid to ask questions and to read labels and so therefore you don't have to avoid the other ones in the family and uh, you know also giving confidence that you can be around it because that's actually will improve quality of life to always carry enough together everywhere every day then not to be afraid of using like you said no one will regret using it what we're getting right using it forget the use of benadryl think of zyrtec and if uh, 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 and if you have one top positive test, you're diagnosed with food allergy. That doesn't mean you're stuck for life. Follow up the blood test. Like I tell parents and pediatricians, sometimes it's like you know, if you go to physical every year, and you have food allergy. doing the physical, you can get a blood test again, and that's a good way of following the the progression of your disease. And if it goes down, then that's a good time for the allergist to come back and and do some you know the the role in the management. So I think that would be kind of my conclusion for season two for now.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again for coming back and for discussing this really important topic.
1: Thanks for having me anytime. Thank you, Jen. Do well.
0: Make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us on Kids Talk Talk.